So good, e- <coughs> good evening, everybody. So here we are at the end of our second day. You certainly look a little more awake than you did two days ago, a little brighter, a little clearer. Even if you don't feel it, there's actually a change in the, both the expression and also the energy in the room, which is nice to see. So tonight I want to talk about <coughs> compassion. And as we mentioned earlier, there's, uh, there's a way of understanding the path as being the f- like the flight of a bird. And that we're developing both aspects, both wings, somewhat simultaneously. The wings of awareness that leads to wisdom and the, the wing of heartfulness and compassion. And that we need both of these essential human qualities in order to wake up. And they're also the fruits of what happens when we practice and we become more free. So they're both the path and also the fruition, you could say. There's a a line from the Dalai Lama that I thought was Interesting, he said, if you don't want to help people, that's okay. Just don't cause any problems. So, this retreat, you may have noticed, not so easy. I'm always curious to know, like, when you imagine signing up for the retreat, you know, what the difference between that fantasy and that imagined reality and, and the actual experience, right? Even if you've done a retreat before, you usually remember the good bit at the end. And so you think it's going to be like that, right? Oh, it's going to be, I'm going to be sitting there, it's, always in, it's in the countryside, there's all these nice people, and I'm just going to be really happy and peaceful and, you know, floating on clouds and, you know, and it's not like that, Right? Maybe moments are like that. It's work. Maybe there's a bit of false advertising going on. (laughs) It's work. It's hard work. And it's often the kind of work that we've never really done in our lives, which is be with ourselves, face ourselves without distraction, and to see what's there. And often what's there is not so pretty, not so easy, not so uh, pleasant. And you could, you know, someone may say, well, how was your retreat? You know, I hear it's really beautiful up at Spirit Rock. They have great food and you don't have to work for a few days and it must have been a nice gig. And maybe it was. But they, you know, the, again, the image of what a retreat is and what meditation is lends this idea that it's a kind of a cruise. Yeah. Meditation cruise, and there's a concept. (laughs) Going nowhere, of course. It would just sit in the harbor. (laughs) So, and as I said the other day, 
you know, one of the reasons why we develop these two sides, these two facets, is because it's not easy. It's not easy in your life. It's also not easy on retreat. And sometimes when we actually develop more awareness and more mindfulness, we actually see a whole different levels of stuff and neurosis and patterns and habits and pettiness and all kinds of stuff that we didn't even notice. You know, ignorance is bliss. And so we actually need an extra layer of compassion because it's so easy when you become more aware, more self-aware, for that to be fodder for the critic. All the ways that we might be selfish or who knows what. So for myself, I've learned that uh, it's been essential, both having had a strong inner critic, strong self-judging mind, and also just because of the challenges of being human and whatever stuff that comes up in our lives, it's been essential to learn how to hold that with kindness, which I didn't have to start with, right? and as, as many of you may not have that much access to. But it is your nature. So that's what I want to speak to and see where we go. And as I'm talking, you pay attention to your experience. When you're listening, listen with your whole body. And... Um, See, what, see what's resonating with this quality. See if this quality is accessible, the quality of compassion, familiar. Does it feel alien? Does it feel like a friend? Right? Just to track what your inner experience is. So I often start this talk with this story that I love, and I still love it, actually. Uh, sometimes stories... Uh, speak to you know different part of our psyche and because we can often see ourselves in the story and this story is an example of how when we show up with simple attention simple care what happens and and what i like about this story is is the humanness of it so it's about a taxi driver this guy shows up about three in the morning It's his last call of the night, honks his horn, no stirring in the house, honks again, no stirring, and he's just about to drive away. He says, I'll just go and knock on the door and see if, see what's going on. So he gets out of his car, knocks on the door, and there's a, he hears a sound of scraping uh, across the floor, and then this little old lady opens the door. She's about 90 years old. She's dressed in full, uh, like she's going out to dinner. She has a pillbox hat on, a little veil. Um, all the furniture in the house has been covered with white linen. There's nothing on the walls. Looks like no one's lived there for years. And uh, so he uh, takes her in his cab. And uh, she's very frail. Carries a suitcase to the car. And, he, and she says... Um, well, she gives the, the, the cabbie the address, and then she says, could you drive downtown on the way? And he says, well, it's not the shortest way. And she says, oh, I don't mind. I'm in no hurry. I'm on my way to hospice. I looked in the rear view mirror, and her eyes were glistening. I don't have any family left, she said in a soft voice. The doctor says I don't have very long. I quietly reached over the meter 
quietly reached over and shut off the meter. What route would you like me to take, I asked. The next two hours we drove through the city. She showed me the building where she'd once worked as an elevator operator. She had me pull up in front of a furniture warehouse that had once been a ballroom where she'd gone dancing as a girl. Sometimes she just asked to show, asked me to slow in front of a particular building or corner and would sit staring into the darkness saying nothing. As the first hint of sun was creasing the horizons, she suddenly said, I'm tired now, let's go. We drove in silence to the address she'd given me. It was a low building like a convalescent home. Two orderlies came out, helped her into a wheelchair. Almost without thinking, I bent and gave her a hug. She held onto me tightly. You gave an old woman a little moment of joy, she said. Thank you. I squeezed her hand and walked out into the dim morning light. Behind me, a door shut. It was the sound of the closing of a life. I didn't pick up any more passengers that shift. I drove aimlessly lost in thought for the rest of the day. I could hardly talk. What if that woman had got an angry driver? or one who was impatient to end his shift? What if I'd refused to take the run or had honked once and driven away? On a quick review, I don't think that I've done anything more important in my life. So to me, this is the, this beautiful fusion of simple attention, simple meeting what's in front of him, this old woman's last, moments outside before she enters hospice and meeting it with a caring responsiveness. A compassion is this caring responsiveness that meets, moves, responds to someone's humanness, someone's pain, someone's vulnerability, someone's distress. In this case, it was really just vulnerability and meeting it with an attunement. Very simple, very ordinary, very human, happens all the time, and we also miss a lot of those moments. Where, you know, as he said, he could have been angry, could have been impatient, could have been anxious to get home, to get this next call, right? So many ways that we can often miss that opportunity to be present, to listen to someone. Or perhaps we're triggered, perhaps we're freaked out, perhaps we don't want to deal with whatever the other person's going through. So we shut down, we numb out, we make an excuse, we go away. And life is full of opportunities because life is full of people and people like us, a human, vulnerable, uh, subject to pleasure and pain. So there's all these times we have this capacity, possibility to meet life with care and particularly with ourselves. And I want to talk a lot about how this relates to ourselves. So when I think about the practice, and, and Noah gave this beautiful talk of the Buddha at his uh, night of awakening, and then he spent the next 45 years of his life teaching and uh, developing this body of work that we have today. Um, but I think about that, the motivation that came from that was compassion. Right? He, he did have the choice, and actually one of the, one of the, time, the first times Mara came was he said, you know, now you've, now you've you know, attained awakening. You could actually just go to the forest and kind of retire. You know, spiritual retirement home. Just have a nice, quiet life. Don't be bothered by anybody. Just live out happily. Like, don't, you don't need to share this stuff. You know? Who do you think you are to share this stuff? 
But the Buddha realized, as he'd been studying and practicing with a lot of meditators and yogis, that there were people who would understand the subtlety of this teaching and who could free themselves from suffering. And that was his motivation. And you, when you read the text, you see that, um, like a lot of spiritual teachers, it's, it's a lot of work teaching people, trying to help them understand, and they get rebellious, or they protest, or they don't like what you're doing. People, he had people who wanted to kill him, his cousin. Had, there was a lot of spiritual rivalry at the time, and uh, he had to do a lot of political dances uh, to navigate some of that. But the, this, despite that, his, the intention was to teach to relieve suffering. There's a beautiful story of when one of his monks gets sick with dysentery, which happens fairly commonly in India, and um, he was left in his room and was you know, covered in feces and, and weak and too, too weak to take care of himself. And so the Buddha went in and washed him, cleansed him, and clothed him. And, um, and then he admonished his, 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 his students and his monks and his nuns and said, you know, we are family here. We have to take care of each other. Like the point of this practice is to care, right? to respond to suffering. So all of, the, all of what we're doing here is, you know, the Buddha said, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering, which as my friend pointed out was actually two things, so maybe he wasn't so good at maths, but anyhow. Um, suffering and the end of suffering. So whether it's mindfulness practice, whether we're cultivating patience, loving kindness, compassion, that's all oriented to meeting and addressing our pain. And sometimes it's not so obvious. I mean, and we often get the question, you know, what's all this following my breath and I'm walking up and down like a zombie? What's this got to do with my life? What's this got to do with the world suffering? Right? And it can happen in, in really small and subtle ways. So there was teaching a retreat here a little while ago and uh, someone had a uh, work meditation job sweeping in the kitchen, which can kind of seem like a nice kind of Zen job. You're sweeping, you know... And, but every time she did it, she got really tense and stressed. And after a few days, she was like, what's going on? She asked that question. She inquired, like, what's going on? And she had this flashback when she was six and her mother died and she was the eldest daughter. And from that point on, she was expected to take care of the house. And that was really the end of her childhood. And that had gotten buried for decades. But because she was mindful and aware she was able to both be with the, the physical activity, be with the tension and the stress, and track all those different levels. And a whole level of um, grief that had been stored inside actually came up and was able to be released. Right? Just from the simple act of paying attention. Right? So sometimes it's not obvious how these practices are, are orienting and relieving suffering, but they do in many interesting ways. So... The Buddha talked about suffering and the end of suffering, talked about the Four Noble Truths, that suffering, the First Noble Truths, there is suffering. Suffering and dissatisfaction is part of life. didn't say life is suffering, but it's unsatisfactory. Right? Anybody notice that? Anybody notice a little, you know, or a lot of? Right? So one way he defined dukkha, this unsatisfactoriness, 
not getting what you want, getting what you don't want, losing what you have, being separated from that which you love. Anybody not getting what you want? (laughs) Anybody getting lots of what you don't want? Like physical pain, like emotional pain, like loss? Being separated from that which you love, losing what you have. Anybody lost anything like youth or health or memory cells or you name it. There's a lot of things we lose, right? It's part of life. It's part of why we teach so much about letting go because we can't control so many things. And when we hold on, we suffer. There's a line that I reflect on a lot in relation to that in relationship to this and the pain that we carry. It says, be kind to every person that you meet because each person has been asked to carry a great burden. Each person has been asked to carry a great burden. And if you look around the room, people look pretty healthy and strong and you wouldn't think, well, you know, maybe there's a few people that have a burden. But if you scratch beneath the surface, as we do when we get to meet with you in groups and individual meetings, we see that there's a lot of burdens here. There's a physical pain, there's emotional pain, there's addiction issues, there's personal tragedy, there's, you know, all kinds of things. That's not all there is. There's also a lot of beauty and joy and love and happiness. But when we remember, just like we reflect on our own life and our own particular burden or burdens, when we remember that, it can uh, remind us to be a little more responsive, a little more caring. So the good news of the practice is that we can transform our predicament. We can transform the suffering that arises in our reaction, in our psychological, mental uh, reactivity to life. That is the possibility. That is the good news. Maybe you've had tastes and glimpses of that, either this retreat or in your practice, where you feel, where you... Maybe say you're being bombarded by negative thoughts and judgments. And at some point, it's like a student of mine uh, on a retreat uh, who had, I mentioned this into, in a group the other day, <clears throat> was getting assailed by his critic. He's, he's an actor, so has a lot of that sort of hardwired from his profession. He's walking down the hill to dinner. His critic's on his case for not being mindful enough, not being Buddhist enough, not being compassionate enough, all these things he's learning. It's easy to turn it into fodder for the critic. And at some point, he has this moment of clarity and you realize it's just a bunch of thoughts. It's just a bunch of words that I give particular importance to. What if I just actually, you know, but once he saw that, once he sort of, it's, it's really like, it's like, you, you, like, the, like Noah talked about, the Buddha talking about uh, referring to um, uh, the house builder and dismantling the ridgepole and the rafters. When you see clearly a pattern with mindfulness, somehow it loses its capacity to have the same impact. Right? When you realize your critic is just a bunch of words, just a bunch of stories that are made up that aren't necessarily true, suddenly you start seeing it in a different way. You start holding it more lightly. So, these tools of wisdom and compassion how do they support us in our journey? So to give an example, um, a few years ago, when was it? It was about, I don't know, three or four years ago now. Um, I was, I'd set out, I'd create, 
some time to uh, do a writing retreat. I'd taken three months off work and to start on a book project and I rented this cabin in the middle of nowhere up in BC, uh, British Columbia, um, isolated so I would have no excuse but to write. Um, and uh, I got there and it, it was really isolated, it felt really lonely and I got really <coughs> triggered and some layers of trauma that, uh, that I hadn't really fully processed came up and it came, it was really, really painful situation, very isolated, no friends. And, um, and it started this wave of anxiety that lasted for quite a long time. I came home, couldn't write, and um, uh, it was very disorienting actually for, for a while. And, um, if, and is anybody who's, uh, anybody suffer from anxiety here? Anybody? <laughs> Right? It's very challenging to be with. The nature of anxiety is almost the opposite of what we're cultivating because we, we, you try to be with anxiety, it often, it often exacerbates it. We kind of bounce off it. It's hard to be with the sensations. The mind's racing. Right? One of the more difficult places to hold with presence. Right? And sometimes it comes and goes briefly. Sometimes it stays a while. This mind went on for f- they're kind of the strong levels of strong waves of anxiety for several months. And like any other normal person, I wanted to get rid of it. You know, even though I know better, <laughs> I wanted to meditate it away. I wanted to love it away. I wanted to do anything to get rid of it because it's so unpleasant. So unpleasant to wake up with that gnawing, tight belly and anxious throat and short breath and worries and fixations about things. And at some point, you know, I, I realized, you know, there's no meditating in a way. It doesn't work. Right? And at some point, we have to surrender. We have to allow. We have to open to We have to feel the suffering of it, which allows the heart to engage, which means we can hold it with a loving presence. And so it wasn't until I was able to, to, to feel that and really, like, abide in that then it, from that place, it doesn't matter whether the anxiety is there or not because there's a, enough of a loving, holding presence and container. And at some point, the anxiety did uh, move through. So, but I partly tell this story because like so much of our practice, it begins at home. It begins with how we are with our own selves and our own stuff. And so that's why we do this practice we do this practice on retreat where we get to, to be, meet ourselves intimately and to see how we are with it. Because how we are with our own stuff, of course, is how we are with each, each other. Right? If I'm not able to be with my own pain, distress, anxiety, fear, loneliness, what happens when I'm around a friend, someone in my family, a student, a client? What's going to happen? I'm going to have the same reaction to some degree. So the more that we do our work here, then of course the more capacity we have. So Krista Neff has, who's done a lot of research on um, a particular act of, partic- this particular aspect of compassion, self-compassion. She points to three pieces that distinguish self-compassion. One is being kind and understanding to yourself instead of turning to judgment and rejection. One is recognizing that pain as part of the human condition, as the Buddha is speaking to. 
And the third is the ability to turn towards rather than away. And this is really the turn of compassion. And it's really, I think, in a pivotal point in our practice, which we have to come to eventually. We often come to practice wanting to get away from pain, right? And fear and depression or whatever. And at some point, you hear the teaching, you've actually got to turn towards it. You've got to lean into it. You've got to embrace it. You've got to allow it. You've got to feel it. And you go, really? (laughs) Is that what I signed up for? I want some other path. I want this Bhakti bliss path. I want the yoga, whatever path. I don't want to hang out with my stuff. I flew all the way from New York to get away from my stuff. But of course, it follows you around. Go to Hawaii, there it is. You know, go rock climbing, there it is. So eventually, we have to turn. We have to open to. We have to meet it with a kind attention. And we, this this quality particularly serves us because there's so much uncertainty in life. And so I think of these qualities as essential life skills that then we learn how to navigate reality, our lives. So I was teaching a retreat, as I think I mentioned, in Baja, Mexico last week, and a woman was there. She had just been through this long period of taking care of her mother in her last days, last months of her life. But before that, in the space of two years, she'd lost her husband to cancer, and then she lost her two brothers to cancer, and then she lost her father to something, I don't remember what it was, and then her mother in the space of two years. Tremendous amount of grief, tremendous amount of loss. I mean, a whole world was kind of uprooted. And it was clear to me to see the resiliency that came partly from her practice, from her ability to hang out with it, to not run, to not hide, to not hate it, but to actually to feel, you know, to, to have that ability to meet each one of those people's decline. And now on the retreat, she was doing the work of meeting her own sort of backlog of grief and loss and how to navigate. But there was also, because, she would, because she'd been able to meet those experiences with a fair degree of presence, she actually was pretty buoyant. It was kind of remarkable, actually. So to think about, as I'm talking, how do you meet your own stuff? How do you meet your own insecurities, foibles, losses, vulnerabilities, deficiencies. It's a bundle of fun being a human being, isn't it? All these wonderful things <laughs> we can be exposed to. Right? My, one of my definitions for dukkha, that's the, the word for unsatisfaction, is it's hard to be human. It's hard to be human and stay and keep an open heart. Right? Either with our own pain or we just look around at the, the tremendous suffering in the world. It's hard to stay open without getting feeling despair or cynical or hopeless. And sometimes even on retreat, you know, we're put up against our edge. 
I got a note from some woman, some retreat. She said, I'd rather be at work. (laughs) At least I don't have to look at my stuff when I'm at work. I just get busy, you know. So, but as much as we avoid and don't like and don't want to deal with the pain that's part of being human, if you look back at your life, it's usually the stuff that's either most transformed you, most forced you to grow, most forced you to heal, and the places that we've learned the most from. Because it puts us up against our edge and we have to find a deeper way to, to heal and resolve. Right. You know, people know what I'm talking about? I know that's true for myself. So when I came uh, to this path, I was suffering a lot. And um, I was running. And, um, and there's different ways you can practice. And different ways. And you can, you can hide a lot in the practice. And one of the ways you can hide is you can try and transcend your suffering, which means you try and sort of meditate over it, as it were. You go to the light rather than the shadow. Is that, that famous phrase from Jung who said, um, uh, enlightenment is not uh, ascending to ever greater levels of light, but uh, descending and integrating into the shadow, the shadowy aspects of ourselves, which is difficult and therefore not very popular. Right? We all want to go to the light. Of course you want to go to the light. You know? why, why not? But if there's stuff that's unresolved, of course it haunts us. So anyhow, so my, in my journey, so I was, I was kind of what's called a bliss waller. Uh, I was into, you know, getting high through meditation, you know, but I was also wanting to get free. But my getting free was to transcend, like to, to go vertical and not deal with this level. I wanted to get above the messiness of human life. Right? And if you meditate enough, you can get to some pretty refined states. And... Um, uh, to some degree, uh, not have to deal with that level if you so choose. You know, sometimes you don't get a choice. But anyhow, so I've been d- doing this for a while. I was that wasn't all. I mean, that's a, that's a slight mis- caricature of what I was doing. But um, I was clearly wanting to transcend and ascend. And I did this long retreat. Um, so in this tradition, the the encouragement over time is to do longer and longer retreats because you get to really deepen in. The, the meditative space and mindfulness and, and uh, to really uh, have long periods where you're uh, immersed in silence and stillness and inner exploration. Anyhow, so I was on this long three-month retreat. I was on my way to Burma to get ordained. I thought I was, you know, Burma, monk, enlightenment, spiritual retirement. You know, that was always like, that was the trajectory and I was all set. And, uh, and I hit this retreat, and it was all going great for about a month. And then someone asked this question in the hall about something, I can't even remember what it was now. And it touched something inside, and then this just tidal wave of grief, and this tidal wave of uh, 
loss and um, memories, traumas. I mean, just a whole really difficult, uh, yeah, I felt like a tsunami <laughs> kind of knocked me flat, literally. And uh, I couldn't even, it was hard to meditate. There was so much pain. And I was, I was most, I did a lot of lying in bed and um, just kind of, it was like a convalescent. I was in a convalescent home for a while. And what was interesting, because I'd been practicing for a while before then, and even though I felt flattened, what remained was awareness and compassion. I wasn't trying to be aware, and I wasn't trying to be compassionate, but because I'd done enough meta practice, because I'd done enough mindfulness practice, that that, w- I was, there was, that was what was left. And sometimes I hear these stories, people are on their way to the operating theater, they're on their way to some really difficult event. And sometimes the practice, the very essence of your practice comes back, which is why we practice for these difficult times. One of the reasons we practice. Anyhow, so um, what, that, what that episode and that, what turned into a dark night of the soul, which of course if you ever had a dark night of the soul, you realize it's not a night. It's like, you know, a year or two. Um, whoever had a dark night of the soul was lucky. <laughs> um, but it turned my life around in, in a way that I feel really blessed by, which is it really um, took me from that ascension downwards into my heart and downwards into compassion. And it kind of broke open what was a kind of a shield and a sheath and a protectiveness that was actually kind of shutting a lot of myself down. And after that, what became much more important was exploring the field of the heart and of love and compassion. And not trying to escape, but actually trying to integrate and heal all these kind of places that I'd split up from. So I look back with some appreciation, even though it was incredibly painful, and I wouldn't wish on anybody, I'm glad it happened because it allowed for a certain integration. So in every moment in our lives, we're, we're asked really a question, which is, can I meet this? Can I meet this moment? Can I be with it? Can I accept it? Can I love it? Or do I hate it, reject it, deny it, fear it, split off from it? So there's a Sufi poet, Hafez, who has a nice way of phrasing it. He says, um, uh, what does he say? He says something really profound, I'm sure. Um, You all have, uh, (laughs) how's it go? Um, You have all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Do not mix them. Do not mix them. But of course we do, right? We wake up in the morning, we feel a little tired, we add in a little grumpiness, and then you know, we think about a day and we feel depressed, and then we, see, we think about someone who's really successful and we feel judging and comparing, and then we mix all those and we feel like crap, right? <laughs> and then Hefe says, he also says, and you also carry the ingredients to turn your life into joy. Mix them, mix them. Right, so what we're doing here is we're learning about really simple, basic ingredients. Awareness, present moment, 
kindness, patience, acceptance, love. Mixing these ingredients, what happens? Our life starts to flourish. Our life starts to grow. We're able to embrace experience. We're able to hang out with the unpleasant. We're able to see the folly of chasing every pleasurable thing because we know it's going to fade. So notice these ingredients. And then notice how what you do with that invitation. Every moment is an invitation. Do you turn towards it? Do you turn away from it? Do you check out? Do you judge it? And not with any judgment, but just to see what you do. So I wrote a poem once. I like to write poetry every now and then. And um, this is a poem about that. It's called Duty. Your only duty is to try not to run from here, from this. Even if the hole of loss burns deep in your soft belly, even if on waking you feel the dread of walking into the day stripped bare, and it feels like the wind pierces those empty places within, you can always pretend, try putting on a face other than your own. But that's a game that's never worked and only burns a deeper hole inside the pocket of longing and makes the shell you've chosen to live in more empty. But when you embrace the starved parts of your being and you touch the void inside that you've spent a lifetime running from with delicate hands of love, the way the evening fog envelops the solitary tree without flinching, pressing into and loving every gnarled crevice, every twisted branch, even the forgotten needles fall into the ground. This is the first step that begins the slow journey of completeness, keeps inviting you deeper into the roots of yourself, claiming your place that has been waiting, that is right here. So mindfulness is that turn, right? Mindfulness is the turning towards what is, which is a very revolutionary act. Rather than running and reacting to every impulse and compulsion, we stay steady in the middle. That's why meditation is so transformative because we stay rooted, especially if someone up here is ringing the bell, so you really stay, you know, if you're home, you might get up and make a cup of coffee, but here, you stay sitting till the bell goes. And you have all kinds of experiences. And what do you learn? You learn that you have the capacity to find steadiness, ease, sometimes equanimity, in the middle of the joys and the sorrows. But to notice also what the quality is of your attention. So there's what's happening and then there's a quality, the responsiveness or reaction. Are you you sitting with an agenda? Like I'll be with this difficult stuff and if it goes away. Are we sitting with judgment? Are we sitting with acceptance? Are we sitting with love? To notice the attitude, like even right now, this talk that might be just boring you to tears, how are you meeting it? How are you with it? How are you present to yourself for your experience? So this is one possibility. This is a story, um, it's really about patience, but it kind of fits. So there's a man observing a woman in the grocery store with a three-year-old girl in the shopping cart. And as they go down the cookie aisle, 
the little girl asks for cookies and the mother says no. And of course, the little girl has a little tantrum and then the mother says, now Monica, we just have half of the aisles left to go through. Don't be upset, it won't be long. Soon they come to the candy aisle and of course, the little girl again begins to clamor for gum, for candy when she's told she's not going to get any. She has a little hissy fit. And then again, the mother says, there, there, Monica, don't cry. Only two more aisles to go through and then we'll be checking out. Then when they get to the checkout stand, the little girl, of course, immediately begins to clamor for the gum and bursts into terrible uh, tears and tantrums upon discovering there'd be no more gum purchased. The mother patiently said, now, Monica, we'll be through the checkout stand in five minutes and then you can go home and we'll take a nice nap. The man follows them out to the parking lot and stops the woman to compliment her. I couldn't help noticing how patient you were with little Monica, he began. Whereupon the mother says, what do you mean my little girl's name is Tammy? I'm Monica. (laughs) So sometimes we need that quality of patience, right? There, there. Only two more meditations to go, and then it's bedtime. There, then, 50 more breaths, and then the bell will ring. Right There, there, I have to listen to this person, and five more minutes, and then <laughs> we can go walk. Right? So th- the compassion has within it infused patience. Right? Patience with ourselves for the, for the difficulty. Right? It's a very human, ordinary experience, and it's not easy. Right? So that's where we bring these qualities to bear. So I want to read another story. This is another way of meeting uh, <coughs> difficult experience <coughs> from a Zen teacher, Darlene Cohen, who had um, chronic debilitating illness for many, many years, and, uh, and, and yet she still taught through that and um, uh, was asked how she was able to do that. And she says, um, People sometimes ask me where my own healing energy comes from. How in the midst of this pain and this slow crippling can I encourage myself and other people? My answer is that my healing comes from my despair and terror. It comes from the shadow. I dip down into it again and again and I'm flooded with its healing energy. However, despite the renewal and vitality it gives me to face my deepest fears, I never go willingly when they call. I've been around that wheel a million times. First I feel the pain and then the despair. I deny it for a few days. Its tugs become more insistent in proportion to my resistance. Finally it overwhelms me. It's clear I'm caught and at last I give up to this reunion with the dark aspect of myself, to the pain, to the loss and the surrender. Immediately the release begins. First peace, then the flood of vitality and healing energy. However, I can never just give up to it when I first feel it stir. I've been through this. You'd think after a million times with a happy ending, I'd give it right away and just say, take me, I'm yours. But no, I never can. I guess that's why it's called despair. If you went willingly, it'd be called something like purification or renewal or something hopeful. It's staring this pain in the face that's so terrifying. I resist it till it overwhelms me and I come to trust it deeply. I'm enriched by, it's enriched my life, informed my work, and taught me not to fear the pain and the dark. So maybe you can resonate with that, right? There's always, there's often places that we're afraid to go to, we resist going to. And yet when we actually surrender into them, 
it's often the profound transformation happens. I remember when I first started practicing, I used to feel sad. And every time I meditate, I felt sad. And this went on for a long time. And I was wondering, why am I always... No, I wasn't always sad, but when I would meditate, you know, when you meditate, you drop beneath the surface layer. It's like, oh, you feel like what's there uh, swirling, swirling around. And it was always sadness. And, and it was about 10 years into my practice, and I started doing much more intensive retreats. When, and the thought occurred to me, rather than just kind of looking at the sadness from like a distance and keeping it at bay, the reason why it stuck around so long is because I was always doing that to it. Right? And it was when I actually sort of let it, and really invited it in, that it was, and then feel that, and kind of really feel it in my bones that it actually moved through. And at a certain point, the sadness went. And it was like quite an amazing transformation to, to drop into my experience and not find that layer of sadness. But it requires that we turn towards. It requires that we open to. And then out of that, out of that ability, just like Darlene Cohn was pointing to, we develop a resilience and we develop a, um, a strength because we develop a certain fearlessness and courage because we're not afraid of anything in here. And when we become unafraid of what's inside us, we become less afraid of what's outside us because we project what's inside outside. Yeah. So I notice this working with clients, notice when we're working with students, that because I've done a lot of deep work in myself and a lot of the painful places that we carry, and learn to sit in the fire of those, then when I'm with other people, it's, 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 it, what used to be intimidating is just, it's just what it is. It's not, it's not, it's not, there's a certain kind of fearlessness which we can then give to other people that we can communicate, you can do this, you can transform this, you can be with this. You have the capacity. Right? And hopefully you're tasting some of that here, even if it's just in moments. So there's a beautiful poem <coughs> by a poet called Rashani, and she writes, talking about this uh, transformation and the qualities that emerge out of, um, you know, like the Buddha sitting on the night of the, his enlightenment, dealing with all the the terrors and of the of the the egoic forces of the mind, and finding that place of resiliency and strength. She writes, there is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole. As we break open to the places inside that are unbreakable and whole. So, as I asked in the beginning of the talk, to just to notice what comes up for you when you're listening to this and maybe thinking, well, no, this is for me, this all sounds very interesting, but um, it all sounds like too much like hard work, um, or I don't have that capacity, or whatever. You know, what's important to remember with the, all these qualities that we're talking about and pointing to, they're not something that's not within you. 
Right? Mindfulness is within you. Awareness is within you. Loving kindness is within you. Compassion is innate to the heart. Maybe a little covered over, maybe a little obscured, maybe hard to reach, but it's in there because it's the nature of your heart. Just like awareness is the nature of your mind, to love is the nature of your heart. And of course, yes, it gets hurt and damaged and traumatized, and it's still innate. There's a Gary Larson Far Side cartoon. I think of him as a good Dharma teacher, and he has this um, cartoon of hell. So we're with Satan, and Satan's just coming out of the fiery dens, and he's shouting to his mom, who was also in hell, with a little couple of horns and a little tail and a and little apron on. And uh, the caption says, um, uh, despite his repeated efforts to dissuade her, Satan could never stop his mother from offering cookies and milk to the accursed. <laughs> and she's there with this little tray, and there's all these fresh recruits into hell, and she's like, <laughs> right, this is the innate quality of the heart. The heart is responsive. The heart is caring. Right? Sometimes despite our better nature, we might even like somebody and, and you know, we're, we're walking somewhere and someone trips over us and we're, you know, before we've even thought about it, we're on our knees trying to help them up. Right? That's the responsive nature of the heart. And sometimes it's, we, we are that it's even pre-impulse. You walk in the hall or you walk in somewhere, you see someone who's crying or distressed or your child is upset and that there's an upwelling in your heart. Right? It's pre-thought. It's just, it's, we're, we're hardwired to care. We're hardwired to connect. And so what these qualities, what these practices are doing, whether it's loving kindness or compassion, is we're, we're fanning the embers of the heart. So there's a, there's a compassion uh, practice, Brahma-vihara practice, like metta, where you use phrases that expresses the heart's wish. And the, 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 um, the phrases are, uh, may you be free of pain and suffering. And may you hold that suffering with ease, with kindness. May you be free of pain and suffering. So sometimes when you're doing the loving-kindness practice and you're doing it for someone who you know is in a lot of suffering and distress, Sometimes it's more appropriate, rather than wishing them to be happy, which you know is a long way off, you, your phrases are tuned to where they are. May you be free of pain. May you hold that stress with ease, with kindness, because sometimes the pain isn't going to go away. The, the debilitating illness isn't going to disappear. So may you hold that with kindness. Right? So that's, this is the attitude of the compassionate heart. It's caring, it's responsive, it's attuned. It wants, it wants the relief of suffering, even though intellectually we, we might know that's not possible. You know, just like the, you know, someone asked me the other day, you know, this meta practice, um, you know, how can you wish everybody to be happy because it's not going to happen? Or how can you wish all beings to be happy if half of them have to eat the other half to be happy? Right? But the heart can hold paradox much easier than the mind can. The heart wishes life to be well. It's just the nature of our hearts. Right? So one day I came out. So in the summer we have the, oh actually spring, the swallows come back every year. They nest above the toilets. 
and they make these make these beautiful nests out of spittle. And then once the chicks grow, you see these little frail, trembly little beings, you know, and their big mouths open, hoping your mama and papa. And the swallows come, and they just beautiful dance, and they feed them, and they grow, and eventually they, they fly off. And one year I, I was, came up, and there was uh, another amazing uh, being that we have here. We sometimes have great horned owls, and great horned owls like to eat uh, baby swallows. Um, and I love the swallows, and I love the owl, and I want both to be happy and free of suffering, and one's going to eat the other, possibly. And that's why they nest by the toilets, because the owl actually can't get in there. So I knew I could do that practice, and you know, it was all going to be okay. <laughs> um, so that, but that's what our, our, our hearts you know, can grow, that capacity, when we hear of the latest horrific terrorist attack, senseless killing of people, wherever it is, whatever form of terrorism, state-sponsored or otherwise. Um, you know, when I hear about the atrocities that happening uh, wherever, you know, whether it's in Sudan or it's in Afghanistan, often I'll notice my heart goes out as much to the murderers and the perpetrators as it does the victims. Especially when, when the atrocity is, is seemingly incomprehensible and barbaric, and they get to live, and I think about the torment that they live with for the rest of their days. Right? It's all suffering. Right? And the heart has the capacity, even though we might hate the people who are doing that, creating senseless uh, violence and terror and suffering, it's all suffering. Suffering arises out of suffering. I remember once listening to a talk from Jacques, uh, I forget his last name, who does a lot of amazing prison work with the Insight Prison Project, founder of the Insight Prison Project. And he was talking about working with a men's group in San Quentin um, where they team up uh, an older and younger prisoner. Um, I think these, these were lifers. And um, they've been doing some meditation and some inquiry. And, and then they were doing a sharing circle. And one of the guys, this uh, younger guy, said, uh, now I get it, I see it more clearly, hurt people, hurt people. Hurt people, hurt people. It's a chain of conditioning that gets passed on, often generationally. And then the older uh, partner, or more experienced life, I forget how it worked, in this particular dyad, this group, um, he said, yeah, and healed people, heal people. Healed people, heal people. So this is partly what we're doing in our work here. We're healing our own pain, whatever that is, however deep or shallow, but pain is pain. And in that, we uh, free up our heart, we grow the heart of compassion so it's more available more likely to be responsive to the pain elsewhere. That's what I see from my own experience. That's what I see watching other people. When, we, when, we're, when we're not afraid to deal with the pain here, then we just have much greater capacity. We once had a, a teacher meeting here years ago. It was probably, I don't know, I think you might have been there. It was about 
15 years ago. And uh, we had a lot of very, very senior um, Buddhist teachers um, and, um, and some, some of whom are now not with us. And there's one particular old uh, monk, Goshananda, who was this remarkable uh, human being who was uh, from Cambodia, uh, been a monk most of his life, was living in Thailand when the Khmer Rouge took over Cambodia and basically created this huge genocide. He lost every single one of his family, all 17 members of his family, um, probably most of the monks he'd grown up with, and uh, went back and did piecework for many, many, many years, walked through the fields, walked through the rice paddies where people were terrified to come out because if you, if you acknowledged that you were a Buddhist, you would get killed. Um, and he walked through the fields and the villages, often through minefields, um, giving this tremendous um, confidence back to the people to reclaim their culture and their faith. And he would chant the Buddhist teaching, hatred never ceases with hatred, only by love alone does hatred cease. And that would be the mantra he would chant, and people would start chanting that mantra, and um, became this beacon of love, you know, despite tremendous loss he'd had. And then when he came here, he was quite elderly and a little, you know, not quite fully um, mentally there. But what was there was the residue of his life's work, which was this loving heart. So just this radiant, loving presence that would bow to everybody with this incredibly sweet smile and a little, you know, shine in his eyes. That was the fruit of his practice. Right? We, we become what we do. Right? We become what we practice. So you might think to yourself, what do you want to become? What are you doing in this moment in order to realize that? In order to make that real? Yeah. Okay. That's enough words. Let's sit for a moment uh, and just uh, let the words dissolve. And actually just settle your awareness into your heart. Feel your breath in your heart. Feel whatever burden you might be carrying or carry. Feeling into the collective burden that we carry as a species. And to reflect on how you can turn to meet that, hold that with compassionate presence. So thank you for your attention. Uh, one announcement for tomorrow morning. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.